Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Welcome to The Reading Life, your weekly look at the Louisiana literary scene. I'm Susan Larson. This week we'll be talking with Bob Becker, whose new book is New Orleans City Park, From Tragedy to Triumph. Robert Becker was the chief executive officer of New Orleans City Park from 2001 to 2021. Talk about an interesting 20 years. He led the institution through its recovery after Hurricane Katrina, as well as the recent COVID pandemic. And he has worked tirelessly to improve the park's financial footing, a great undertaking when you consider the institution existed without funding for 169 years. He's the recipient of numerous awards for planning and is the former director of the New Orleans City Planning Commission. In his new book, New Orleans City Park, From Tragedy to Triumph, you'll gain a vivid new understanding of one of the most beautiful spaces in New Orleans. Bob Becker, welcome to The Reading Life. Well, thank you, Susan. Thanks for having me. It's so great to meet you after reading this book. I love a man who knows how to use an exclamation point. (laughs) (laughs) The highlight of my writing style. Well, you seem to have been a person very happy in their work. I certainly was. I I enjoyed the different jobs that I've had in New Orleans, the Planning Commission, working for the Audubon Nature Institute. Uh, But working for City Park was really something very special because the park was in such difficult straits when they hired me. And to have had a role in its comeback and getting through various tragedies and being so so successful now it, it, it was it was really the highlight of, i think of of my whole career well one of the things that struck me reading this book was how many different hats you had to wear you needed skills as an administrator as a businessman for city parks home to a variety of enterprises you have two major museums there you have to be a bit of a naturalist you have to understand waterways and monument preservation and then golf and tennis and Storyland. They're all wrapped up in one place. Yeah. In my previous life before City Park, I had never run an amusement park, for instance. <laughs> right. you know, I had really never been involved in a catering operation, you know, yeah. where, where we cater uh, for brides and other uh, events in, in the park. So it certainly was uh, a jack-of-all-trades kind of a kind of role. And, and in the beginning, the park was so understaffed and so underfinanced and, and all that that you had to jump in and, you know, and if you didn't know something, you had to kind of bluff your way through it, pretend you knew it. And But I think, uh, you know, one of the biggest uh, roles and that I had to really learn and and try to try to master was fundraising. Mm-hmm. Really trying to raise money and uh, make people aware of the situation that the park received no public funding. Right. You know the only major you know park urban park in the country that got no no public funding at all, and so that was a big focus of my activities uh, right up till Katrina. And then 
after Katrina, of course, the the damage was so evident that you know whatever fundraising skills I, I, I had came came to bear. Right. Now, one of the things you do remind us of in this book is how City Park is the backdrop for so many beloved family events, weddings, birthday parties, concerts, picnics, trips to the museum, campouts on Scout Island, you know, <laughs> celebration in the Oaks. Parks are complicated institutions that serve a variety of purposes in civic life. You know, a, a major urban park uh, like City Park here in New Orleans or Forest Park in St. Louis or uh, any of the other big major parks, they're integral to the life of the city. And City Park being right in the center of the city, it was clear to me that when Katrina hit that the city itself would not recover unless the park recovered, being mm-hmm. right in the center of things. And so it couldn't have been clearer that there was a mandate to get the park back on its feet if we expected everyone else in the city to get on their feet and to come back and you know, into their homes or their businesses or the various activities that they had. And I don't think, when I joined City Park, I had worked for over 10 years at Audubon Park. Right. So I knew the role of Audubon Park in that in the uptown neighborhood and in the life of the city. But I, I, I didn't really appreciate how central City Park is to mm-hmm. the lives and experiences of our citizens here until I got there. Well, let's talk a little bit about that recovery, because that is the biggest part of the book. So you, you became paper pusher extraordinaire to get things done. And you had such frustration. You know, it was so dramatic. The damage was so dramatic and so widespread uh, that when I and some of my staff got back to the park, I honestly thought it would be 25 years before the park could recover. Uh, So extensive uh, was the damage. But when you're down and out, you, you put one foot in front of the other and, and, you, and you start to go. And so we had some great experiences. Uh, for instance, uh, one day in our temporary trailers, uh, two people showed up and they were from the Starbucks Foundation. Just showed up, knocked on the door of the trailer and said, we'd like to help. From that, we got $250,000 to p- rebuild play equipment and that sort of thing. And then you had the frustrating experiences. For the first six months after the storm, we only got $6,500 from FEMA as public damage, $6,500 in the first six months to try to recover uh, this park, who uh, was basically laid waste and had no money. And, you know, now, as the years went on, FEMA came through. But uh, it just taught me that you can't expect FEMA is going to come through and help you right when you need it the most. That's not borne out to happen that way. And so, for instance, uh, when COVID hit and uh, we had to lay off people again and, and a lot of the economic engines of the park were shut down by the governor, right. uh, we had learned from Katrina. So we had saved money and we were able to uh, reduce the number of people that had to be laid off or had to have their hours cut. And we were able to survive that from the lessons that we learned from Katrina. And these were both things where we were all in it together. It's a strange thing when you're all trying to navigate, you know, you're uh, you're trying to go to the same people for money for, you know, for help or or you're going through the same public process with Katrina as all the public agencies are going through uh, through the process. So uh, it, it, it's definitely a learning experience and uh, not not one we would want to re- repeat. And you're going through the rebuilding process at home. Uh, my house where I lived in north of the park, we lost a third of the house. So when we got back, you know, I would work in the park 
all day, and then I would come home at night and try to clean up my house and uh right. and eventually we had to tear tear down a third a third of the house and and then we lived with people in Metairie for three weeks or so before I could get the power turned back on in my house to go back in the house and begin to work on it. So Which it was sheer hard. luck. Yeah. It was total luck. We I was outside of my house well, I was one only one in the neighborhood, uh, one of the only ones in the, in the neighborhood, in the, in the Lake Vista neighbor, neighborhood, and I was outside with a chainsaw cutting down this big tree limb that had fallen right in, right in our, our front yard. No, there was nobody there, no power, no nothing, and a guy from Energy is walking down the lane of the subdivision, and he, he's got uh, electric meters hanging on a belt from his, from his side, and he, he walked up to me, and he said, would you like your power on? <laughs> what you like your power on, you know? And I said, "Well, yeah." So he, he goes over and he puts a new electric meter in, and boom! You know, the house lights up, and I can hear the air conditioning kick down. Of course, it failed three months later, but it did kick on. <laughs> I was thrilled, but it's it's one of those odd circumstances that yeah. happens when 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 you're in a, a disaster situation like that. And I'm sure you never thought you'd be making such large and grand requests of foreign governments. I wish you'd tell that story. Well, it was right around the time that Xavier got a big grant from the country of Qatar. And they got, I think, $10 million or something to help them recover. So I said to one of my people at the time, I said, shoot, you know, we're in a lot worse shape than Xavier is. I mean, we're we're totally devastated here. We, we have yeah. nothing. We should go for, let's go for a home run, you know. So we, so we contacted uh, the Saudi Arabian embassy and we made a big request, you know, like 30 million or something like that uh, for help from the, from the Saudis. And we didn't hear anything from them. And I thought, well, this is, and then one day we get somebody from the Saudi embassy comes by our, the trailer where we were at for five years after the storm. And he said, well, the Prince Turkey Al Faisal is uh, is coming to, and he wants to see the damage. Well, when he I thought, oh, my ship has come in. The Saudis, yeah. the Saudis are here. As it turns out, of course, the Saudis are huge horse lovers, huge horse lovers. So when he came here, he wasn't really interested in any of the damage to the park. He wanted to see the equestrian facility that we have of off course. of Fillmore. And so he came and he toured that. And, and then then they left and we waited and, we, and nothing ever came. Nothing ever happened. But hope sprang eternal. Hope always springs, always springs eternal. Now, I love the way you describe the first 13 years as full-on recovery mode. So talk about some of the landmarks in the recovery that meant a lot to you. Well, um, you know, everything was laid waste. It was either totally destroyed yeah. or heavily damaged, and all the equipment was lost. And, you know, we had to lay off 90% of the staff because we had no public funding and had no money uh, at the time. But over over the course of years, um, we managed to convince the state government to come and help us. And um, they put us back in the operating budget in like oh six, seven, and eight. We got in the operating budget, which gave us money to hire back people to uh, help us fund renovations to various facilities. We got our botanical garden up. That was yes. the first thing that we got up, and we were able to operate out of. Our chef for two years cooked for weddings on a barbecue grill outside the uh, the pavilion of the, of the two sisters. An amazing job that Pat O'Shaughnessy did. 
but slowly we bought equipment. We started to take care of more of the park. We built a miniature golf facility, which uh, turned out to, to be a real cash cow for us. It generated you know, revenue for us. We got our driving range back up and operating. That generated revenue, and that was a, a, a highlight. And eventually the North Golf Course, we managed to fix and get back into service. And then after five years, we, we got a new administration building. So we were in trailers for, for five years in the center of the park. Ooh. And then we convinced the state to help us fund a new tennis center, which we built off of Marconi, one of the finest small tennis mm-hmm. centers in the South. So, you know, little by little, every year, you know, progress. This is fixed. This is uh, replaced. Uh, this is generating revenue. And then a huge moment when the state granted us a share of the tax revenue that comes from the slot machines at the fairgrounds. That was huge because before that, the park had no source of public operating revenue. Mm -hmm. So that provided funding. Then FEMA's funding finally started to kick in. And then our volunteer program, you know, hit in. We were able to hire yeah. more people. We created a, a, a development department, which we had never had before, and we modernized the management structure of the park. It just was a continual progress each and every year. You had so many unexpected stakeholders to serve. You had FEMA. You had the National Guard. You had the New Orleans Police Department right there in your backyard. Anybody who remembers 05 after the storm, if you were back in the city, you remember that the New Orleans Police Department was occupied by other things that were going on in the city. So for months and months and months, City Park was like the Wild West. I mean, there was no service there. And uh, campers came and they put up tents in the park. They were being paid to clean up the rest of the city and there was no hotel space or anything. So they just set up tents in the park. And one of the funny stories in the the book is we were in a couple of makeshift buildings and, and a trailer and we had all these tents in. And we had no money. And I said to our uh, director of operations, you know, we should go and charge these people for camping out in the park. I mean, they're making yeah. money. We should go. And so you looked at me and you said, you want us to go to these tents and ask for rent money from all these tents? And I said, yeah, well, why don't we try that? Let's try and do that. So our guy who was head of risk management at the time went. And at the end of the first day, he came back and he said, you know, Bob, I think I need somebody with a weapon to go with me. He said, because it's pretty much a wild west out here. And I don't know what is, you know, what will happen. People say, you know, they wanted, you know, we wanted $300 a month for you to have a tent in the park. But we found out that once these contractors knew that the money was going to the park, they were more than willing to pay, you know, to pay some rental fee for it. So there's just a lot of those kinds of experiences that are Innovative, in so innovative. You know, <laughs> out, of de- out of desperation, <laughs> you know, out of desperation, you think of a lot of a lot of strange things. We early on, the golf driving range had always been something that generated revenue yeah. for us. Always been, and of course, it was totally ruined. The building was ruined. All the golf mats were floating places. The buckets that held the balls were floating. So we went out there and said, "Well, how, how can we get this thing in operation? How can we come back from this?" and we said, well, why don't we just put up a tent and then we'll go and we'll collect golf balls that are out in the driving range and we'll we'll offer them for $10 a bucket and see who comes and wants yeah. to play. So we did. We put a sign out, $10 a bucket. Like we hadn't had the sign out five minutes and a, a car pulled up. I, I want to play. I want to play. Do you have any golf clubs? 
well, no, we don't have any golf clubs. I mean, we, <laughs> you know, balls. we're lucky. We're, and he said, well, well, don't get my spot away, and I'm going to go get one of my golf clubs. He drove, and he came back, and pretty soon it was all filled, and people were hitting golf balls, and it was like we thought we were the greatest managers forever. <laughs> and then one of my staff said, you know, Bob, we're running out of golf balls. They've hit them all out in the field. We don't have any way to pick up any golf balls. So they're out there. People are coming. We can't, we have no golf balls. So we took a couple of bullhorns and we went out and stood in front of the people who were driving. And we said, you know, you guys have had some recreation and some enjoyment here, but we can't pick up the golf balls. We need your help. And sure enough, they put down their golf clubs and they walked out into the field with us. And we picked golf balls out of the mud and brought them all back. And we operated that way for several weeks before our maintenance director could rig up a machine to kind of pick up the balls. That's one of the best stories. It's one of those those, uh, desperation stories. Now, you also devote a chapter to the controversy over the Beauregard Monument. Which must have been a really hard, hard time too. Yeah, that was that was a very difficult period. In 2015, Mayor Landrieu made it known that he was going to take out uh, four monuments, one of which was uh, General PGT Beauregard that sat at the front of the park. And there was a lot of controversy about uh, well, who owns that statue and who owns the ground underneath that statue, and you know yeah. the city, the city basically took the position that it had the right to remove a nuisance. All these nuisance and so obviously we weren't going to uh, stand in you know stand in the way of that we had people that say well you got to get your police out there and prevent them from doing that I said no 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 we're not going to do that if the city and the city council think they're a nuisance and they want it removed that's their authority but you know we had people that picketed our board meetings we had people you know that did all kinds of stuff and then after the statue was removed we had to take the pedestal of the statue out because the mayor took the statue without the pedestal. Which is an invitation to trouble, and empty an inv- pedestal. It was an invitation. So we eventually took it down and paid for it to be taken down. And then, you know, and then people would throw things up into the circle. They threw a voodoo doll up into the circle with pins in it. And they threw stones that had Robert E. Lee's name on it and that sort of stuff. Those pictures are in the book, by the right. way, that I, I, I put in there. But there was a constant really tension between those people who looked at the statues as a part of history and a part of, you know, a telling of the history versus people who looked at it as people who committed treason, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and started the, started the Civil War. Yep. Beauregard, you know, had the dubious distinction of starting the Civil War by firing on Fort Sumter. So, so he, he had a lot of reasons. that. He had a lot of reasons why uh, he was not popular. And then came COVID. You must have felt like Job. You know, we we thought we were really doing really well. And we had just passed a property tax redistribution Mm -hmm. that gave the city park a share of the property tax that went to recreation for the first time. 0.61 mills that generated about $2 million, which was really great. When that tax passed with 76% approval, by the way, you know, I started to think about retirement. It was getting to be that time. We were almost finished with the master plan that I had done back in 04 and 05. And then COVID comes and the governor shuts down the state's economy, basically shut down the the, the state's economy, including our economy and our, Mm -hmm. you know, our ability to raise money. 
And in an odd twist of fate, the only recreation facility he allowed to remain open in the beginning were the golf courses. So Uh. the golf courses stayed open, generated some revenue for us. But that was really hard again. And we had to lay off some people, reduce working hours, take pay cuts to try to get through that until the state again came to our rescue in October of 20 when we got funding in the general appropriations bill to make up mm-hmm. for funding that we had lost. A lot of state agencies did, and we did we did too. But when you have a park that's heavily reliant on self-generated revenue, yeah. you know, generating revenue itself, if that revenue is cut, is cut out, whether it's by a natural disaster or COVID, it's very difficult to recover. So you've enlivened the history of City Park with all these wonderful stories, but you also felt it was really important to include the master plan itself. It was. That was a key for us, particularly recovering from Katrina. Mm -hmm. The park had not had a master plan for years and years. One of the skills that I brought to the job was as a city planner. So we did a new master plan, which we vetted in throughout 2004 and the beginning of 2005. And we adopted in 2005, just a few months before Katrina hit. But it was an adopted master plan. And it was huge for us to be able to go to corporations and funders and uh, foundations and public agencies and say, we have a master plan. We know what we want to do. We know how to recover, and we know what. And it's been vetted, and it's been uh, you know approved. And we don't need to go through any steps. And you know, city went through a torturous planning process to try to develop a plan for the city. You know, so mm-hmm. they could spend FEMA rec- recovery dollars. We we had all that. It was all done, and it was a key to helping us raise money and to demonstrate to all the f- different types of funders that we knew what we were doing yeah. and money's that would be given to us to be spent would be spent wisely and in accordance with a plan. And that plan held through all the way, really, through COVID. What's your favorite place in the park? What is special to you? You know, for me, it's uh, the dog park. Is, uh. is is a big place. I have a dog, young dog, and, and, and have had dogs, uh, golden retrievers, all my life. So being able to take you know, your dog to the dog park and exercise and play with other dogs is really a big deal. I love the wildflowers. We developed a wildflower Uh program where our horticulture staff every year would plant big fields of wildflowers. And I love to go there, watch people come there with their children and all that. And you see just a huge amount of color in, in the park, which I always thought was an important horticulture goal. I love that. I love the golf clubhouse. It's Mm -hmm. a beautiful building and it's right sits on the veranda, really, of the South Golf Course, and you can eat there and see how beautiful the park is and how big the the park is. I love driving down Roosevelt Mall with the canopy (laughs) of the oak trees and and that, you know, so so there are are a lot of places. Sunday morning, I I like to go to Café du Monde and, you know, have beignets and, and coffee. So there's, you know, there's a a ton of places in the park that I, that I think are have special attraction, depending on what you're looking for you're looking for an athletic something or an aesthetic feeling or but I, I do love the dog park. I do love Storyland. Storyland is magical. Yeah, Just it that is. life size, you know, nursery yeah. world. Yeah, it's 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 a pretty unique place. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's been renovated several times, including several times that I <laughs> renovated it after Katrina hit, and it still draws tremendous number of people. And I I love it that it's right there with the botanical garden, so you can go in the one building and go in the Storyland or go in the botanical garden and. 
and we invested so much in the botanical garden, not only as a place where we started the comeback of the park, but because it had such a rich history dating back to the Rose Garden and the WPA, it's a special place, too. You don't sound like you're really retired. Well, as I said, when I when I retired, I took some time to write this book. <laughs> uh, I took some time out to, to write the book and uh, find a publisher, uh, thanks to Pelican Publishing, for mm-hmm. uh, for publishing the book and getting the pictures uh, together from a whole variety of, of sources. So now I get to talk about the book on yes. programs like yours, and I get to go and present book talks at various places. So that's been very enjoyable. Well, every New Orleanian needs to read this book. We've been talking with Bob Becker, who is the CEO Emeritus of New Orleans City Park, and his new book is New Orleans City Park, From Tragedy to Triumph. Thank you so much, Bob. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you, Susan, for having me. I appreciate it. Here's what's on tap in the literary life this week. Tamisha Anthony, illustrator of There's No Place Like Hope, presents a story time Saturday, January 27th at 11 a.m. at Garden District Bookshop. Errol Labor discusses and signs when Rex met Zulu and other chronicles of the New Orleans experience, Saturday, January 27th from 1 to 3 at Barnes & Noble Metairie. New York Times best-selling author Ibram X. Kendi, author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, Stamp from the Beginning, and co-editor of 400 Souls, A Community History of African America, 1619 to 2019, as well as many other books, discusses his work in a family-friendly meet-and-greet, Saturday, January 27th at 3 at Baldwin & Company. This is a ticketed event. Elizabeth Williams, founder and president of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, and Matt Haynes, author of The Big Book of King Cake and The Little Book of King Cake, present a tasting and discussion. Monday, January 29th at 6.30 at the Jane O'Brien Chatelaine Westbank Regional Library in Harvey. And again, Tuesday, January 30th at 6.30 at the Eastbank Regional Library in Metairie. Daniel Jose Older and Alyssa Wong discuss Star Wars The High Republic Escape from Valo with Claudia Gray. That's Tuesday, January 30th at 6 at Octavia Books. Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books with major support from Rouse's Markets. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation, the Jefferson Parish Public Library, and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in The Reading Life do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The theme song for The Reading Life is by Matt Perrine and Sunflower City. The Reading Life is produced by George Ingmeyer and is a production of WWNO. You can listen to us anytime or subscribe to our podcast at wwno.org. And you can email us at the reading life at wwno.org.